Welcome to the first, good morning. Welcome to the First Universalist Unitarian Church. My name is Mandy Wright, and I'm a member of this congregation. I want to extend a special welcome to everyone joining us here and online this morning. Since 1870, UU Wasa has served as a vital voice for liberal religion in central Wisconsin. We are an intentionally free society that welcomes all people just as you are, regardless of age, sexual orientation, ethnicity, or economic situation. Wherever you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. We are currently worshiping both in person and online, so be sure to subscribe to the church's newsletter and follow us on Facebook or Instagram for updates. And with that, uh, we have some announcements first. So today is our first Sunday's potluck for May. Please join us in the dining hall after this service for delicious food and fellowship. The May Potluck is hosted by the UU Wasa Adult Choir. Thank you, choir. Every year we recognize our graduating senior high youth with a bridging uh, ritual, both to honor their transition to emerging adults and to offer our blessings for wherever their journeys take them next. This year we will celebrate bridging on Sunday, June 5th, if you have a youth graduating from senior high and they would like to take part in our bridging ritual, please contact Jessica. We also have a guest preacher today. Pay Carter is a UU candidate for ministry who is graduating from Iliff School of Theology in June with a Master's of Divinity and a focus in social justice and ethics. They will be starting the Doctorate in Ministry Social Transformation at Unite Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities in fall. Pay lives in Eau Claire with her two kids. With that, let us gather our hearts and minds for worship. Please join me in reciting the church's chalice lighting. You will find the words printed in the order of service. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith as we gather together. Please rise and join in gathering hymn number 146, Soon the Day Will Arrive.
doctrine of this church. The quest of truth is its sacrament, and service is its prayer. To dwell together in peace, to join in freedom, to serve human need, to the end that all souls shall grow into harmony with the divine. Thus do we covenant with each other. And the doxology. to come out over the past few years is more children's books by authors telling their own stories, being able to share their own culture, their joys and challenges and strengths. And this morning I want to share with you a picture book called You Hold Me Up. It was written by Monique Gray Smith, a First Nations woman from Canada. Monique wrote it to take readers on a journey of healing for the truth and reconciliation in Canada and to remind us of our common humanity. There we go. And while it's a simple book, it does so beautifully show how we can live with love and support each other in our community. Again, our book this morning is You Hold Me Up by Monique Gray Smith, illustrated by Danielle Daniel, and published by Orca Book Publishers. You hold me up when you are kind to me. When you share with me. When you learn with me. You hold me up when you play with me, when you laugh with me, when you sing with me. You hold me up when you comfort me, when you listen to me, when you respect me. You hold me up. I hold you up. We hold each other up. And that is our story for today. Please join me in blessing our children off to their groups this morning with May Peace Surround You. The words are printed in your order of service.
The mission and ministry of UUWASA is made possible by the generous support of its friends and members. Rather than pass a plate at this time, we've placed an offering basket at the back of the sanctuary for you to drop a gift in. You can also stop by our website, uuwasa.org, to make a one-time gift or recurring gift with your credit or debit card. Thank you for your support. So the prayer that I chose in silent meditation for this morning is We Are One by Hope Johnson. We are one, a proud, diverse group of kindred spirits, here not by coincidence, but because we choose to journey together. We are active and proactive. We care deeply. We live our love as best as we can. We are one, working, eating, laughing, playing, singing, storytelling, sharing and rejoicing, getting to know each other, taking risks, opening up, questioning, seeking, searching, trying to understand, struggling, making mistakes, paying attention, asking questions, listening, living our own answers, learning to love our neighbors, learning to love ourselves, apologizing and forgiving with humility, and being forgiven through grace, creating the beloved community together. We are one. Now, if you could remain seating for prayer hymn number 352, Find a Stillness. Flower, flower. 
So the reading that I chose this morning is an excerpt from an article to survive climate chaos, look to queer and trans folks by Vanessa Raditz and Patty Byrne. Communities around the world are grappling with the growing number and intensity of climate-related disasters due to climate change. The forces of capitalism, racism, ableism, transphobia, and homophobia may have cornered us into a vulnerable position in this unprecedented moment in our planet's history. But the wisdom we've gained along the way could allow us all to survive in the face of climate chaos. The history of queer and disabled folks has continuously been one of creative problem solving within a society that refuses to center our needs. If we can build an intersectional climate justice movement, our species might yet have a chance to survive. Let's start by openly, joyously proclaiming that we are natural beings, not aberrations of nature. We find healing and justice in the realm of queer ecology, a growing field exploring the vast diversity of gender and sexuality that exists in nature. When we began to see the planet through this lens, we remembered that the entire world has biodiversity that is precious, necessary for our survival, and deeply threatened. Whether we're looking at ecology, society, or our human culture, Biodiversity is our best defense to the threats of climate change. When we begin to see our own diversity reflected in the ecology of this planet, we can also recognize that the same threats, the same forces threaten both. Just as capitalism is one of the biggest threats to biodiversity on this planet, seen in the clear cutting of forests to plant monocultures for fuel, it is also the driving force behind behind the violence towards marginalized people with disabilities because our bodies are not perceived as being productive. We're seeing in the climate chaos that's erupting as the Earth's resistance. The question is, how can we ally with this brown, queer, disabled femme planet to support her survival and the survival of all who depend on her? We have to know our worth to value others. We have to fight for the valuable lives of butterflies and moss and elders because our life, all life, depends on it. We must move beyond our cultural beliefs that tell us that we are only worth as much as we can produce. Just as each component in the Earth's ecosystem plays a vital role in supporting everything around it, so do each of us have an essential role to play in sustaining our communities, our environment, and our planet. Even in the moments when we are in pain, when we are uncomfortable, when the task ahead feels overwhelming and we feel defeated by the sheer scope of everything that's wrong in the world, we don't have to give up on life or humanity. Queer and trans disabled know that because that's how we live. At this moment of climate chaos, we're saying, welcome to our world. We have some things to teach you if you'll listen so that we can all survive.
Once again, good morning, and thank you for having me again this morning. It was a great joy to find out that uh, you would like you wanted me back. So I appreciate this this moment, and of course for assisting in my formation as a future faith leader. So this morning, I thought I would come and preach about storytelling and narrative justice and its role in our congregations. This is my focus in ministry. I, when I started at ILIF, I felt called to ministry, but I didn't know how and what ways I wanted to do that. And I took a storytelling and narrative justice class my second year at ILIF, and it really impacted me physically, mentally. Uh, I was able to connect my advocacy work with the class and, as I, as I mentioned, find that it is a very important thing that we need in our congregations. Now, I've been doing advocacy work on mental health and trauma in a variety of settings for over 12 years. I later added disabilities to the things that I talk about um, after I developed multiple chronic illnesses, all invisible, with four out of five impacting me physically, and most of them either being rare or under-misdiagnosed. And then in the last year, I started also adding in talking about gender and sexuality as a post-op agender pansexual person. Now, all of these topics are very personal to me. They are my stories and my experiences, but they are ones that a lot of people can relate to. And I'm privileged to be able to share what I have gone through and continue to go through to raise awareness about topics that society and a majority of people want to avoid. Now, I've been told countless times on social media and in, per in person that sometimes what I share is too personal. Sometimes it is from friends or family members or people that I've met on this path of life. Medical conditions should be private. Trauma should only be discussed with a therapist. The reasons why I should not talk about these difficult subjects can go on and on and on. The reasons why I talk and I continue to talk about this is because I've seen firsthand how sharing my experiences and lifting the voices of others has helped foster deeper discussions, build connections, and inspire change. To me, standing here and speaking about this is a privilege and something that I feel called to do, and not just because I am a future faith leader. I acknowledge the privilege that I have even within the communities that I belong to. For example, I have a 100% rating from the VA, which provides me with secure, guaranteed income and health care for the rest of my life. I can stand here and say I'm queer, I'm disabled, I'm a trauma survivor without fear of losing or sacrificing a job, losing my family or my friends, or my faith as a Unitarian Universalist. And as humans, we need connections with others humans especially like ourselves that we can relate to, learn from, grow with. However, for those living in the margins, society prefers to hide us, to shame us, to silence us, and to isolate us from each other so that we stay where we are, which is oppressed. Now, this, this was something I didn't fully understand until 2012, when The Invisible War, a documentary on the epidemic and systematic cover-up of military sex crimes, was released. It was the first time I saw and heard someone somewhere with experiences similar to me. The military and the government was good at making us feel like our experiences didn't happen or we were to blame. They kept us isolated because of our numbers. We were powerful force when we were together. And this documentary was eye-opening for me because it made me angry. It made me heartbroken. It made me happen, a real whirlwind of emotions. And it was like a light switch flicked inside of me, calling me to speak out. The following year, I won a scholarship to fly to Washington, D.C. and meet with legislators at the Capitol to talk about this issue and I was surrounded by over 200 survivors and their loved ones. And once again, my heart was breaking and joyous at the same time. How did so many of us experience something terrible, yet no one knew? Heck, we didn't even know each other existed. Now, I'm gonna share during my sermon a couple of readings from a book called Medicine Stories, Essays for Radicals by Aurora Levins. Morales, and this was one of the books that I had to read for my class. And in it, she shared a similar story to 
what I experienced at that conference. She said, I still remember how the earth moved that day. I was 16, sitting in a consciousness-raising group of half a dozen women who were all part of the Chicago's Women's Liberal Union, talking about the places that we struggle in our lives. One after another, we said variations of the same things. And slowly, comprehension dawned on us that we were ex what we were experiencing as personal shortcomings were the markers of social oppression. We were just fine. Our situations were not. This is the moment that organizers strive for, when the systematic forces behind individual misery become clear, when people's dissatisfactions turn outward, away from self-blame, blame of other oppressed people, blame of human nature, and toward the workings of an unjust society. We try many strategies to make that shift happen, but the successful ones all begin with the particulars of people's lives and follow them down into our shared root systems. There are stories that show resistance is not futile when we assumed it was. These stories are, the, these are stories that make connections between experiences that seem separate and expose the underpinnings of denomination. They are the stories that crack open lies and make complacency intolerable. They are stories that build trust, allow catharsis, honor grief, validate anger and rage, offer unexpected and heart-melting examples of solidarity, and bestow courage. Now, it was at that three-day conference that I decided to start collecting stories and poems, letters from survivors and their loved ones across generations and across the country. And I took these stories and I compiled them into a theater project called Speaking Out Why I Stand. It was during this process and the performance that I really saw the impact of storytelling and narrative justice. Survivors at first were very hesitant to share their stories because for their whole life, for years, no one believed them. They told them that their story didn't matter and that they didn't matter. So who is this person coming in wanting to know these stories? I distinctly remember talking to one elderly woman who was a survivor as a, as a child of a military family. And she didn't think her story mattered because it had been 60 years since it happened, yet she could remember every single detail like it was yesterday. It mattered. All the stories mattered. Now I also realized during that time that some, something beautiful, beautiful things can come out of tragedy and out of storytelling. One of the pieces written in the theater project was uh, submitted by a man named Gary. He was not a survivor, but his daughter was a victim and he lost his daughter after the military, after she came home. He didn't know why she was home and didn't find out what happened until after she passed and he came across her journals. Now, quite a few people that uh, were the actors in this play connected with the survivors and the people that submitted pieces. And there was a poem that I wrote that was written by a woman named Dawn. And Dawn and Gary connected and now they've been married for five years. So this was a beautiful story that came out of something that was not beautiful. Now as a future faith leader, I also find it important to show that the people behind this pulpit aren't perfect and shouldn't be expected to be so. My life hasn't been free of trials and tribulations. I've been in therapy before, I have health issues. I've made mistakes and will continue to make mistakes because I'm human, just like all of you. And I continue to preach and talk about these issues and my struggles because I am putting a face, a living body example to the oppressed and marginalized groups that I belong to. Here I am standing behind a pulpit, a place that comes with power and status, saying to those in my community, I am like you. I am here. I have a right to be here. And so do you. Now, when I was an intern minister, I was expected to lead and preach a certain amount of services in a given year, right, to help in my formation. And most of the services, the services that I planned also involved members of the congregation sharing parts of themselves that maybe others didn't know or knew little about. 
In a particular service that I called letting go of identity, I struggled. I talked about my struggle with letting go of my able-bodied identity when I came disabled. But I also opened the service up, like I said, to other members of the congregation who wanted to talk about their own struggles with identity, such as alcoholism, trauma, loss of a loved one, and more. Now, of course, by adding in more people to the service, my time for my sermon narrowed down. And this was, of course, brought up in an internship meeting the following month. And when they, you know, mentioned that, that, hey, by adding these people, you're cutting down in your sermon, you really need more practice. That's what the point of this internship for is. I asked, why does my voice more important than others? I said, look at what we know now. We know now that this person is an elegant poet who put her struggles into beautiful words and shared it with us. We know of this person who has debilitating migraines, who needs help, who struggles to get to service, but was afraid to ask or talk to anyone about it because they didn't think anyone would understand. We now know how really important it is to have Alcohol Anonymous meetings in our building because of a member who is struggling with alcoholism and finds help and recovery in the safe space that we provide. We can't receive help if we don't ask, and we can't offer help if we don't know. Storytelling and narrative justice is vital because we need, like I said, mentioned, as I mentioned earlier, those deeper connections to sustain ourselves, our congregation, and our faith. We need people who are alike and different from us so we can grow and be better versions of ourselves. We must take part in this so we can provide a safe and inclusive space for all and to fight injustice and the forces that keep marginalized people oppressed. To do this isn't easy. It is work that is often difficult, calling us out internally or externally on our biases and assumptions, pointing out and addressing our mistakes. But we need to sit in the uncomfortableness that comes with hearing firsthand stories of oppression in order to inspire and create change. Our UU faith calls us to put our principles into practice by building a beloved community, to understand that everyone has worth and dignity, to have justice and compassion in human relations, acceptance of one another, and of course, respect for the interdependent web of all of existence. And what this means is our stories matter and other people's stories matter. Now we often make up stories in our head about why a person must be this way or who they are just by looking at them. And these stories are fueled by our upbringing, right? What we learn in school, what our parents teach us, what the media portrays about people with different identities and backgrounds than ourselves. And this includes people that we strongly disagree with because because they have opposing thoughts or ideology. We have to remember to separate the actions from the person, not excusing any harmful actions or thoughts, but understanding that a person is that way because of a reason, because of a story. And to be able to put our first principle that everybody has worth and dignity into practice, we have to understand that everybody, everybody has a story. And these stories aren't easy to see right off the bat, right? Morales talked about the extent of her own story, which you can't see just by looking at her. She stated, I am both disabled and chronically ill. I live with epilepsy and the after effects of multiple brain injuries and a stroke, a predisposition towards diabetes, and a childhood of self-medicating with sugar. But most of all, massive pesticide exposure during my childhood made worse by impaired liver function and extreme abuse at the hands of international traffickers, which overpowered and impaired her body's natural defenses and set her all-body-mind systems on red alert. Now she said when she migrated to Chicago, where the air was full of tiny black particles blown from the steel mills and coal furnaces. She was Puerto Rican, Jewish, female, epileptic, and bisexual, living on her own at 16. She said she could have been sterilized five times over by 20th century eugenicists who didn't stop cutting epileptics in Illinois until 1970. 
Now that is quite the story, and something that you probably wouldn't know just by looking at her. You know, I stand here as an example of a person people make lots of assumptions about. Because my hair color, because of my tattoos, right? I remember taking my daughter to a playground and there was one other family there. They saw me, looked me up and down, packed their kids up and left. Making assumptions because I'm a person with tattoos, right? If only they knew I was in seminary. Um, <laughs> you know, you can't tell just by looking at me that I have multiple disabilities, right? You can't tell by looking at me that I spent most of my childhood in other countries and didn't relocate to the States until I was 13 at that point, living in over and traveling to over 12 different countries. You can't tell that just by looking at me. You don't know that, as I mentioned when I was here last time, that I initially dyed my hair blue when I worked at a fellowship many, many years ago because it was easier to find me after service. Okay? Like, you can't tell that I have these stories. You can't tell also that I was run over by a Segway at Pride, that I will share that another time. You can ask me after service. Um, or had a very unfortunate experience at the zoo when I was a child with a tiger that decided that I was going to be part of his territory. You can't tell these things just by looking at me. Um, I was talking to Mandy before service, and I said, hey, what assumptions do people make about you? And she mentioned that I'm really tall, so people assume that I played volleyball and basketball in high school. Then she's like, when in fact, I'm a relatively inflexible yoga teacher. <laughs> Thank you for uh, taking part in that with me. Um, I can, you know, I can make assumptions even about inanimate objects. My um, dad gave me this Bible actually right after I preached here when he heard about what I was talking about. And there's a story within this as well. My, my dad was raised Methodist but did not raise me in any religion, um, as I mentioned last time. When, I, when we lived in Malaysia, he took me to all sorts of festivals, temples, things, tried to immerse me as a, in as much cultural variety as he possibly could. When my, when my grandparents died, um, he basically didn't want anything to do with religion. He doesn't like to talk about it. It's not a conversation we ever bring up. So I was quite surprised where he said, hey, I have this Bible. Do you want it? And he was given this to him when he was five. So that's 1961. So he has carried this Bible around when we've moved overseas multiple times. Regardless of if it's in storage or if it came with us, he held on to this when he didn't raise me in a faith, when he does not identify as Methodist. And that's a story right in here, this huge, really old Bible. By the way, it was like 15 years old, I think, when he got it. So, I mean, it's, he really kept it in good shape and carried it around. I mean, really, I, I've got textbooks that I've had for three years that aren't even in this good of a shape. <laughs> And so, like I said, the storytelling and narrative justice is vital because we have to deepen our connections to each other. Um, actually, hey, I missed my page. See, hey, ministers and people at the pulpit make mistakes. I'm going to point that out. I think I mentioned last time how when I preached for the very first time and I was stumbling because I made a mistake, somebody came up to me and was like, thank you for making mistakes. I'm glad to know I'm not the only one. Now, as I said, we have these learned ideas of what a person of a community should look like and act, right? We jump to conclusions based on what we think we know about another person. Before, before I came disabled, you know, I probably, walking in the parking lot, might have had a second, you know, this quick second thought about a person, now like me, who parks in a disability spot who looks to walk just fine, right? Sometimes I even still, and I use the disability spots. And it's because of what, how we're raised, what the media portrays, and so it takes work. It takes work to break down these assumptions and biases and the ideology and the things that we have, those narratives that exist in our head, and we have to do it by opening up, right? By listening to the experiences of others, by sharing our experiences. When we have privilege, we have to use it to lift voices up and fight injustice. And I'll close with one last reading from Morales because this is, I think, very, very, very impactful to me. Now, what if each body could speak in its fullness voice, in its fullest voice, and be heard? Every form of social injustice demands that we silence our bodies. 
From our infancy, when we are taught to eat, sleep, move, be still, be quiet, or talk to suit adult needs and not our own. From the first schoolroom in which learning was divorced from movement, from nature, from touch, and we had to sit in our row of desks for hours. From the start, we're taught to manage our flesh for other people's benefit, to train ourselves to be the workers the system needs. We are denied and learn to deny ourselves fresh air and exercise, clean water and healthy food, rest. From the start, we are taught to subordinate our truths, change our names, tame our tongues, told to stop crying when it hurts. Because it hurts, because when it does, we told we can't have the lives we want because we aren't the people who are enough. Those of us who are body minds are an explicit problem for the profit machine are punished for it. Warehoused in institutions, left alone in our rooms, seen as bad investments, and refused resources. The job of inclusion is left in our laps so that we have to construct every single door we want to go through, build it from scratch over and over again. We are written in their ledgers as obstacles. We, are, we get in the way of extraction, or so I hope, because this is our gift to the world. By our very existence, we are challenging the ruling definitions of human worth, the nature of work, of ability, of aliveness, what it means to produce, what we should value. We survive when we do because we are able to build a web of relationships, able to tend to each other, feed each other, able to chain ourselves to fences and loudly chanting groups, able to insist on our own stories about who we are. We have the power to, leave every, to lead every movement for justice towards sovereignty, respect, and tenderness for all bodies, all minds, to practice universal inclusion now while we are struggling to shift and repair and remake the fabric of the world. We have the power to teach our movement, to teach the people around us who believe they are invincibly able-bodied how to listen and to trust their own bodies and minds, respect the limits of capacity, how to rest and have needs, how to move from our centers and build social justice practices that are rooted and resilient. Our stories are not just personal compasses. They are navigation for the world. So ask yourself, what does your body have to teach us about the architecture and language, time and flexibility, and the act of breath? How would we have to shape our society for nothing about you to be disabling? Where does your body want to lead us? And how would the world be different if it did? Now, if you would like to uh, rise for the closing hymn, Let There Be Peace on Earth, uh, there are words in the order of service.
This morning's benediction is The World is Too Beautiful by Eric Williams. The world is too beautiful to only be praised by one voice. May you have the courage to sing your part. The world is too broken to be healed by only one set of hands. May you have the courage to use your gifts. May you go in peace. The moon shines bright, the stars give a light, a little before it is day. The promise of dawn is calling to us and bid us awake today. joy.